MSW Media. Trump will be out of office soon. Will he pardon his family and friends on the way out? Let's get on topic. Welcome to On Topic, a weekly in-depth look at a topic that helps us understand the week's news. My name is Renato Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a legal analyst. And I'm joined by my friend Patty Vasquez, the host of The Patty Vasquez Show, who joins us regularly on this podcast. But before I bring in Patty, I want to thank our patrons who brought us this episode. With special thanks, Andrew Donnelly, James Frohmeyer, Jay Gelhausen, Jamie and Izzy Gordon, Patrick, Steve Hungsberg, Ari Lamstein, Shana Wachinski, and an anonymous patron. You too can become a patron on our website, ontopicpodcast.com. Just click the support link at the top of the page. So Patty, I have to say, you know, a lot of the legal news since Trump lost uh, in the election has been focused on his various lawsuits and legal maneuverings. And I have to say, uh, I will say this as a legal analyst, those lawsuits are not worth the paper that they're printed on. So instead of focusing our attention on something that won't matter, uh, I thought it made sense to focus on something that does matter, which is uh, Trump's potential to pardon his friends, his associates. There's been reports that he's weighing uh, potential uh, pardons of of his uh, children, Jared Kushner, uh, Rudy Giuliani. And I think there's been a lot of speculation that he will pardon himself. And there is a DOJ investigation uh, of a, a money for pardon scheme. Uh, so just a lot of pardon activity coming out of the Trump White House as of late. Well, and as you saw from the reaction to your tweet, asking people if they had questions about, you know, these pardon powers, I, what has really been sustained, the emotion, I think, is the lack of justice, right? We see so many things being eroded in our democracy and to see the the continuation of really just blatantly trying to get away with stuff makes people really upset. And they want to see that he'll he'll be be, he will be held accountable, and yet (laughs) he never has. So I'm not sure if people should have their hopes up. Yeah, it's interesting. There's there's continual hope. I know there's another another a very popular legal analyst who uses the hashtag Justice is coming all the time and keeps promising keeps promising that uh, Trump's going to you know get get what's coming to him. And I will say that you know there's a just a deep um, need that people have to feel that that's going to happen. You know, I um, I don't doubt that Trump is going to be paying some consequences for his actions, and I think he already is. He's leaving the White House in disgrace. That's something. Um, but, you know, in terms of pardons, one of the things that, you know, is in fact the case is the Constitution is very hard to amend. Uh, in the case of the pardon power, it gives sweeping authority. The language itself is pretty sweeping. We'll talk to an expert a little later about that. Um, But I think that, you know, what is frustrating to people is this idea that, you know, can he potentially keep, you know, some of his uh, children out of prison, that sort of thing. And I think, 
you know, there it's certainly possible that he's going to be able to, uh, you know, uh, at least as to federal charges, do that in the same way that he recently pardoned Michael Flynn. And it, the funny thing, you know, I I wrote about this uh, recently in the Daily Beast. You know, I think that pardoning Flynn was the least objectionable thing he did re- in relation to Flynn. I mean, this is, you know, Trump tried to do his best to manipulate that outcome and had Barr, you know, uh, you know, have the Justice Department mislead the court and everything. So, you know, I think that we are going to see some very damaging activity between now and January 20th. And a lot of it's in terms of rhetoric, whether it's about the virus or the election, but in terms of action, pardons, I think, are, are a big part of something that will have a lasting impact. No doubt about it. And I think during, you know, the last four years, there's been language that was similar to what Nixon alleged, which was that he could do whatever he wanted or, or you know, commit illegal behavior because simply because he was president. And there I know that there are lawyers in the White House whose sole job is to find out if he can get away with something because he's a president. And I think that's what is maddening is that to, to think that even after this, that will continue is really just it's hard to wrap your mind around. Well, one thing I will just give listeners um, a little bit of comfort is this. Uh, and I'll talk about this more in our patron newsletter, which is going to come out soon. Um, is that, you know, is somebody who is much smarter, more able, more cunning, more calculating than Trump could have gotten away with doing a lot more. I mean, one thing that I think is an, uh, something to consider after the presidency is there's definitely been authoritarian um, messaging and tactics that have come, in out, come out of this White House. But Trump's been pretty ineffective at getting a lot of stuff done. I mean, sure, he's got a lot of judges appointed. I think that's due to people like Mitch McConnell and and his former White House counsel, Don McGahn. But in terms of like getting laws passed and making radical changes to our country, he's been less effective than you might think. But, you know, uh, you know, a, a smarter lawyer, God knows what could have happened with the use of the pardon power. Here he's gonna do whatever he does in his last days, you know. And but he does. He is surrounded, uh, Patty, by some smart people who are advising him. And you know, here's an area where they'll have an impact. I mean, some of my former law school classmates are in his, you know, from Yale Law School or his in his in Trump's inner circle, giving him advice about what to do. And I do think a pardon, uh, you know, for a lot of these people you know, very well may be in Trump's interest uh, or in their interest, uh, which uh, may be the same thing. So I, I will say uh, to everybody, um, while uh, we are focused on what Trump is doing here, I think it what matters is the consequence. You know, one thing that we will want to do in the podcast going forward, and I'm looking forward to doing, is focusing less on Donald Trump. And, uh, you know, you know, he when he's no longer the president of the United States, his legal uh, foibles will still matter and we'll still all be very interested in what happens to the former president. But I don't know about you, Patty. I am looking forward to the day when Donald Trump is no longer uh, the name that is featured on notifications in my phone. Oh, no doubt about it. I And I've, I've sort of eliminated a lot of those paths on my phone where I get, you know, constant messaging. I'm like, you know, I can't. It's, and I think that, 
you, you know, this has always been about it being a marathon, not a sprint, right? That was sort of the, we, we were always waiting for a hero too, sort of this, uh, you know, intervention. Some Surely we're going to be rescued from this madman and we never were. So, <laughs> you know, the, I, the thing is, and I've practiced a lot of self-care, a lot of meditation in the last four years. Um, so I hope that people are finding the place to sort of the anxiety levels um, should be managed because this is uh, it's just too much. I agree. And that's part of the message that I want to send here is that, you know, uh, this is a tough time for everybody. COVID rates are spiking. There's a lot of people, many people I know who have lost relatives who they themselves are sick, people who lost jobs, people who are struggling to make ends meet. Focus on your own problems. The good news is that Trump will not be president of the United States uh, by Jan- you know, by the January 20th of 2021. And, you know, he's limited in the damage he can cause in the meantime. Uh, what we're seeing here is not a calculated systematic effort to burrow uh, himself and his policies in our country. What we're seeing is just some flailing of someone who is unwilling to accept reality um, at least publicly. And, you know, what What I do think we will see in terms of consequence are perhaps things like pardons, and we'll talk more about that today. But, you know, going forward, you know, Donald Trump's impact on our lives and hopefully on our public discourse will be more limited than it is today. So, so on that happy, I think, sort of note, um, I'll let, it's time to bring in our guest. Rachel Barkow. Professor Barkow is a professor of law at the NYU School of Law, and she's also a kind of an eminent scholar in the areas of constitutional law and criminal justice, uh, has written uh, one of the leading criminal law case books, and she's written at length um, about clemency, pardons, uh, as well as criminal justice reform. And she's written in particular uh, about uh, the use of the pardon power and Trump's use of the pardon power. So I thought she'd be a good person to bring to help us understand exactly what he's able to do. Welcome to the podcast, Professor. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So there's been a lot of discussion uh, and speculation recently about the potential uh, expanded use of the pardon power by uh, President Trump. Uh, there's been reports, for example, that he's considering pardoning his family members, associates, his own lawyer, potentially even himself. And I think it might be a helpful starting point to help people understand what the pardon power is, where it comes from. It's obviously it's in the Constitution, and it's fairly broadly written. Can you Can you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, so the pardon power is in the Constitution right alongside the commander-in-chief power. Uh, So the framers thought it was pretty important to put it right up there at the top of the executive powers for the president. And essentially, um, it gives the president the authority to give pardons, which are um, essentially complete forgiveness of a of a criminal conviction or criminal activity. So it would wipe your record clean effectively. Um, or commutations, which would be a sentencing reduction. So you would still have the conviction on your record, but you could get a shorter sentence up to the president. Um, the, it gives the president the power to do either of those things. Um, 
really for whatever reasons the president deems appropriate um, and is really only limited um, in the sense that the president can't do it in cases of impeachment um, and it has to be a federal offense because it's it's a presidential federal power. Um, so it wouldn't apply to anything that a state would bring. Now, you, you, there is that clause, uh, except in cases of impeachment. What exactly does that mean? Can you help us understand that? Yeah, so if Congress were to impeach someone, um, the president couldn't give a pardon for impeachment, right? So if, uh, if Congress were to decide that some office holder at the federal government behaved improperly, you know, committed uh, high crimes and misdemeanors and merited impeachment, um, the president couldn't do anything to undo the impeachment. So it was the framers' way of making sure that corrupt governmental actions that rose to that level couldn't be undone by a president. Um, but but everything else would be fair game for clemency. So there have been some pretty broad and at times unprecedented uh, pardons in the past. You know, one question that we get uh, frequently or the listeners have a lot of uh, concern about is the potential for a pardon for an activity that hasn't been charged. In other words, pardoning somebody for something even, you know, to cut off a, a criminal inquiry. Now, and that has happened in the past, I think most famously in the pardon of uh, Richard Nixon by Gerald Ford. Um, what is the what is this kind of the state of the Constitution and what courts say about that? Yeah, so uh, that's that's correct. You can get a pardon for um, it's you know it's a pardon for crimes and they don't have to have been charged yet um, or if they were charged it didn't have to proceed to a conviction yet. Um, it it just the requirement is just that it can only cover past conduct. So you can't get a pardon for future conduct. It's not, you know, kind of a get out of jail free pass going forward. But the idea is that if the president believes that activity that a person has committed um, deserves mercy, shouldn't be charged, uh, the president has the ability to to remedy that through a pardon. And, you know, one way to think about it might be that um, as the head of the executive branch, you know, it's also the case that if we think of the president as kind of at the top of executive power, at the top of charging power, um, you know, for those who believe in a very strong executive that uh, the president essentially has some control over who should be prosecuted in the first place. It sort of corresponds to that notion as well, that, you know, the, the president is in charge of all executive power, including prosecution power. And the pardon power is one way to exercise that control, because if charges were brought or they're being contemplated of being brought, um, one way the president can control that is by saying, no, actually, I, I don't think that's appropriate. And therefore, I'm going to give this person, you know, I'm going to give this person a pardon. Now I should I should say that the um, you know in the case of of, of the Nixon pardon um, you know there was an attempt to challenge that in court uh, but but no one had standing to do that so that specific pardon in that language was you know was never litigated but that would be the same problem that would be presented if Trump were to do the same thing you know it really isn't the kind of thing that could make its way through the courts. Um, by, you know, kind of a regular citizen just deciding to challenge it. So it would be it, it, um, the only way that something like that could get challenged would be if, let's say, uh, President Trump gave up uh, some like a preemptive pardon like that to someone and a new administration decided to charge them anyway. Um, 
then that person who received the pardon would raise it as a, you know, kind of a defense to get the case dismissed. And it's really only in that kind of posture that a court could litigate the issue. Um, but I really think it would survive and, and that the idea of the preemptive pardon would survive uh, as long as it, as I say, covers past conduct, not future conduct. You know, uh, just to help make that clear to, to our listeners, standing, uh, this concept you mentioned, essentially is that the average citizen can't just sue uh, uh, and bring lawsuits about things that they have nothing to do with. You have to be somebody impacted um, directly impacted uh, by a particular action to bring a lawsuit about it. And you, it, your lawsuit has to, it has to be about some actually harm that matters. In other words, the court has to have power to do something about it. So in other words, it can't just be random Joe citizen who's upset that Jerry Kushner got a pardon. You know, in the case that you explained, it would actually be a new administration uh, bringing an action, which would essentially create an issue where this would matter to somebody And there would actually be a court case between uh, the United States Department of Justice and Jerry Kushner in that case, in which case, Mr. It would matter to Mr. Kushner whether or not that pardon uh, was valid. Yes, absolutely. And well put. It's a complicated legal uh, legal concept to to make sure everyone understands. You know, one thing that I do think was interesting, uh, Professor, about the Nixon uh, pardon is that it was very broad. It was for all offenses that were committed or may have been committed against the United States for a long period of time, basically the entire Nixon presidency. Um, Is there any limit on how broad a grant of a pardon can be? You know, I, I, again, some of these issues haven't been litigated, you, you know, and taken up to the Supreme Court. And so I, I never want to say definitively that the court will absolutely rule one way or another. Um, but I think it's a pretty safe bet that as long as the language of the pardon grant itself is clear in terms of what it means to cover, um, that, uh, and as long as that is a period of time in the past, um, that it'll include, you know, any federal any federal criminal activity. So that language that was used in the Nixon case should similar language be used for, you know, some uh, uh, one of the Trump kids. Um, you know, I, I think it is probably the case that it would be upheld by a court, you know, should, a, a, like I said, should a subsequent prosecution be attempted, which would be the only way we would even think about it, um, getting to a court. Uh, I think it would effectively allow that Trump kid to get the case dismissed, um, because I do think it would be held valid and, and a court would find that to be within the president's powers. And I should say the other thing that it would do most likely um, is it probably would make it that a subsequent administration wouldn't even try. You know, I I think it's also it's not just about kind of how a court would ultimately rule, which, as I say, I think would be in favor of holding the pardon to be valid. But, you know, if you're the next administration that comes in and you're thinking, do I want to use political capital? Do I want to put the nation through a possible federal indictment in charge of somebody, you know, who has received this pardon, you know, it probably 
helps put the thumb on the scale of not going ahead and doing it, um, both because you probably are going to lose on the merits, but, you know, also just kind of thinking about that added procedural hurdle, you know, the kind of added uh, nature of going forward in spite of the fact that you have this. You know, I think just in general, we probably wouldn't see it litigated for those reasons. Well, that's an important point, um, I think, and a very good one. You know, whenever you decide to charge somebody, back when I was a federal prosecutor, I would have to make a decision about what what uh, litigation risk there was. In other words, what risk is there that we're going to lose in court if we bring the, these charges? And also another consideration is always the use of resources and using resources in, in the example, hypothetical example we talked about before, to try to prosecute Jared Kushner, where you know he has an argument about a pardon, and you know that that's litigated, you know you may lose. It's the sort of thing that doesn't happen. And I think this helps, this 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 uh, thing that we're, we're explaining here helps uh, everybody understand why, as you just said a moment ago, Professor, a lot of these issues haven't been decided by the Supreme Court. Because once a president pardons somebody, it's hard because of the issue of standing that we discussed earlier for there to be a situation where somebody is going to have a lawsuit in which uh, this would come up and and new administrations, for the reasons you point out, uh, aren't going aren't to have an incentive not to uh, bring new charges that would test the uh, limits of the pardon power. Yeah. And I think, you know, strategically speaking, if you found evidence of activity that you thought was the basis for a criminal charge, you know, strategically speaking, what you might do instead with that information is if there were corresponding state charges that it could support, um, you know, which is highly likely because there's so much overlap between federal and state criminal laws and activities that you might be better off just sharing whatever information you had with a relevant state prosecutor because the pardon definitely wouldn't cover that. Um, it wouldn't immunize someone from a state prosecution. And, you know, that would probably be the the more efficient and strategically wiser course. Yeah, that would certainly be the, the easiest way to deal with it because, there, as you point out, Professor, there'd be no question. It's also possible if the pardon was sufficiently limited, if it was very narrowly focused on certain issues, that it's possible a federal action could be brought, you know, with a, against, uh, you know, charging a crime that is not specified in the pardon. But of course, as we saw, for example, at the recent pardon of Michael Flynn, it was very broad, written uh, to be as broad as possible. Um, the Nixon pardon, as we ex- discussed, was extremely broad. You can imagine uh, and expect that a Trump administration would uh, draw pardons for the Trump family members as broadly as possible. Well, I think we want to go now. I know our listeners have submitted a number of questions. Patty, do you have any from our listeners? Yes, for uh, <laughs> quite a bit, as a matter of fact. So, Professor, this one is uh, two parts uh, in regards in relation to the impeachment process. Since he has already been impeached, does that impact whether he can pardon those who refused the subpoenas? And people want to know if Speaker Pelosi starts the impeachment process you know, before he leaves office, can he still make pardons? Yeah, you know, he is he he is still the president. <laughs> um, and so as long as he holds the office of the presidency, the fact that he had been impeached, you know, but not convicted, um, or that new impeachment proceedings would be brought are irrelevant. While he is president, he gets to um, use all the presidential powers, you know, in the same way that he is still commander in chief. Um, and so, that means that any 
pardon that he issued issues while he serves as president um, is a valid pardon. So that would have no effect on his ability to issue pardons. It's not a limit at all. You know, one thing I think our listeners may be thinking about as they listen to this podcast, Professor, is why the heck did the people who wrote our Constitution give the president such a sweeping power? Because uh, many of the other presidential powers have checks and balances built into them, where, for example, you know, uh, uh, you know, the uh, power of the purse uh, is a limitation of what the president can do unilaterally. And the president can't make even appointments without the advice and consent of the Senate. So why is it as to this particular power is the power so sweeping and it appears without a lot of uh, uh, checks and balances or oversight? The clemency powers were put in the Constitution for the president to be able to check the excesses of the other branches. Um, the framers knew uh, that we would have legislation that would go too far um, and that would produce sentences that were too long and too severe for people, and they wanted a means to let those people have uh, for getting mercy, for getting a sentencing reduction. And, you know, it's it's a power that um, derives from the power of kings in England, where um, it was used against uh, the bloody codes that were similarly too harsh. So the framers were just well aware of the dynamic that sometimes public passions, you know, get people to want to support sentences that are really just too excessive and harsh. And they wanted there to be this mechanism in place that allowed the president to correct that, to correct the legislature for going too far, and, you know, to correct for um, executive branch officials who would bring those charges and go too far, and to correct judges who would impose sentences that were too long. So the idea was to give it uh, a broad scope so that the president could check those other authorities. And it's a really critical power even today, because in the federal system in the United States, there is no other mechanism for someone to go in and get their sentence shortened um, because we don't have parole. So no matter how much someone changes over time, um, how much they have demonstrated that uh, they have rehabilitated, um, there's just nothing they can do to get that sentence shorter other than ask the president for a commutation. And similarly, if they are suffering collateral consequences from a conviction, you know, they can't get a necessary occupational license or um, they're finding it hard to get a job because of a conviction on their record, they can't get that expunged unless they get a presidential pardon. So it's a really important mechanism even now for the president to have. And, you know, we have had presidents who have used it effectively for regular people. Although, to be honest, in the past couple decades, it's been pretty minimal, um, its use by most presidents. Really, you know, President Obama was kind of the exception. He had an effort to um, give sentence reductions to people serving really long drug sentences. Um, and, you know, and even that one, to be honest, fell short of, of its target and it didn't reach everybody, but, but at least was an effort to get to the kind of what I view as the people most in need and most deserving of this power Sorry. But, but, you know, I think when people see a power that's abused in the way that Trump has been using this power, you know, it makes them suspicious of why it exists at all. And, and you know, unless there's a kind of very public defense of it, an explanation for why it's important, you know, my worry is that people will just want to throw the whole thing out because they'll view it as just this really arbitrary, um, nepotistic way for a president to just show favor to, you know, people who are loyal to him. Um, but that's, you know, that's that's not how it has been used. Um, Trump is just using it in a particularly awful way. Um, and, and the hope is that, you know, in a new administration, we'll see it used again um, in the way that it should be. 
Yeah, I, I think you raise a very important point uh, because, uh, and I want to circle back to this later because there's some questions I want to ask you about this regarding the use of clemency as a tool of criminal justice reform. I think it could be very important. Um, but of course, we have at times seen the pardon power used in very highly questionable ways. The Iran Contra subpoenas, or excuse me, the Iran Contra pardons, uh, for example, uh, and the pardon of Mark Rich and other ways that have been drawn a lot of criticism. Obviously, what's being imagined here, as you point out, it really looks a lot like nepotism and corruption. I do know we have some additional questions from our listeners. Uh, Patty, uh, what, what do we have uh, from our listeners? Well, Professor, you know, we talk a lot about uh, you know this, this hunger for justice, so people are trying to find every route possible. And somebody asks, if he preemptively pardons people, could he later be charged with obstruction of justice once he's out of office? You know, I think that would be um, tough to do because this is a presidential power that he lawfully holds. Um, you know, it is possible— um, you know, this came up during the Mueller investigation. You know, you know, what if you are basically dangling pardons in front of people to get them not to cooperate with the Mueller investigation? Could that itself be a form of obstruction of justice? Um, and, you know, there's some debate over that about whether or not uh, that could be a basis for it. I, I think it would be um, very difficult to establish that because you're, you can give a pardon um, for any any reason. Um, and, and I would assume that what would happen in the case of a grant by Trump to any of the folks that I've seen being mentioned is he would state what he thinks the reasons are, um, which would effectively be, you know, he thinks there's a witch hunt and he's worried that they're going to be unjustly prosecuted just because they're affiliated with him because he's been unjustly uh, pursued for a variety of things. Um, and, you know, if, if I don't think a court is going to look behind that and say that, you know, there was some kind of obstruction. You know, it's, it, it, again, it goes to that, that larger debate that, that we had during the Mueller investigation. If you have a, if you're doing, you know, the debate over, I should say, over, um, you know, firing Comey, you know, he's allowed to fire the FBI director. And then uh, there was a discussion of, yes, but what if the only reason he's firing him is to, you know, kind of cut short the investigation. And it's just very hard in in any case that might involve mixed motives or a variety of reasons for a president to take action, to have that be the basis for charges, because, you know, it, it, there's a part of it that does fall within his lawful authority. Um, and, and the pardon power is so sweeping that I just don't think that would be the basis for any obstruction charges. I, again, I think, you know, it's, it, it would be legally really uh, a reach to try to make that argument. And then it goes back to that point about as a matter of prosecutorial discretion, who's going to take on the hurdle of trying to bring those charges in light of how difficult it would, it would be. And, you know, what do you really get out of it? Um, in terms of advancing the rule of law, I think is just so shaky that I just don't anticipate ever seeing that going forward. Yeah, I think that's that's absolutely right, Professor. And, you know, it's it's very easy. One thing I'll just caution our listeners, it's very easy for legal analysts to tweet about this is obstruction, that's obstruction, justice is coming or whatever. It's much more difficult in the real world to make a case that you can prove beyond a reasonable doubt to a jury and that it's going to survive legal challenges. And you know, a pardon by its very nature is obstructive in the sense that it cuts off the legal process. I think the question would be the only time a pardon could potentially be the basis of criminal charge is if the president or is acting with a corrupt purpose in, in issuing the pardon. Now, there, there's been some talk, for example, recently or some reports 
and in fact, a document, a court document about a, a, a cash for pardons scheme. Now, it wasn't the, the, the scheme as it appears, it's a heavily redacted document, but it doesn't appear to be that Trump was in on the scheme. It's that somebody else was essentially selling their access to Trump in exchange for money. But if a president was taking bribes for pardon, the act of taking the bribe, you know, that would be potentially it would be a corrupt purpose in issuing the pardon. But that's that's not you know what is being alleged here. Now, is it possible to argue that there's a corrupt purpose for pardoning, let's say, associates, people that he was in league with who might know things about him? Sure. But as the professor, I think, uh, aptly put it, you know, she said, you know, she talked about the practical realities of bringing a case. To me, that seems like a real uphill battle in court. And so I think uh, I agree. Just I want to kind of reiterate and and, uh, add on to what you said, because I think that's very important for people to understand. Um, I also want to say, too, I think that the point that, you know, you've made, uh, you know, about the pardons being pardons being used for good and bad purposes are important. I know there's been a lot of focus right now here on the 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 use of them in this, I think, way that is highly criticized. There's a lot of concern about them. Um, I, I one thing that I do think is important for people to know is, you know, there a couple of things. So first of all, there there it's possible that there are some limits on the pardon power. They haven't been litigated yet. One one thing that it, it, I wonder about, Professor, is does um you know does the person the president granting the pardon have to know who they're pardoning? In other words, we had Jimmy Carter pardon everybody who dodged the draft, and I you know those were I don't know if those were were challenged in court. But, you know, would would Trump be able to pardon everybody who was involved in a particular uh, affair without knowing who those people were or specifying who they were in the grant of the pardon? I don't think so, because even in the case of the folks in um, in the Vietnam draft evasion cases, there was a commission that had been set up uh, that President Ford set up to help sift through all those cases and names. Um, and so I do think the specific people were listed. I'm, I'm not aware of any example of a grant that didn't specify a person by name. Um, you know, I, that one, I'm just, I, I, it, it may, it may exist and I just don't know about it, but I'm not aware of that. Well, that's, so that's an important limit. That's what I'm, I'm trying to get to here. What are the limits? So that's one, I think, important one. Another, another topic that people discuss, and I think this is related, which is why I led in with this prior uh, example, is the issue of a self-pardon. You know, I, no president has ever tried to pardon himself or herself, um, although we've had male presidents. Um, and no, and therefore, this has never been litigated by the court. But some argue textually that uh, uh, the pardon power presumes that there's both a grantor and a grantee. I'm curious what your take is regarding whether or not uh, a self-pardon by Trump uh, would have any validity. Yeah, so, you know, this one just requires us to um, guess how a Supreme Court would come out if faced with the issue, right? Because it would ultimately uh, have to be decided by the court. Um, You know, I tend to think that the court would decide that a self-pardon is okay. Um, And although I do think it's not a slam dunk, there are arguments that are textually based on the notion of you you grant a pardon, um, as you said, which the inference to draw from that is that there's a grantor and a grantee, and they're different people. 
And so, the, you know, there's, there's, it linguistically um, is a bit of a stretch to grant something to yourself. Um, and there's also a kind of bedrock notion uh, behind the rule of law that, you know, people shouldn't be judges in their own cause that uh, would point in the direction of not reading into the Constitution the ability to make a judgment on yourself as president. Um, so there are arguments that would cut against finding the ability to give a pardon. Um, but on the other side of the ledger is the fact that the language is written in a very sweeping way, and it particularly carves out impeachment um, as the one instance where the president can't issue a pardon. And I tend to think that the current court would probably read into that the idea that the way that you um, address presidential misconduct is through impeachment proceedings. Um, it's a political act with uh, impeachment. And if the president was doing something wrong, the president couldn't pardon himself from an impeachment. And so built into the structure of the language in the Constitution is kind of no ability to get out of a problem if the problem is impeachment, and that's the mechanism that you should be using with the president. So I think they would kind of view it as a self-contained universe, that if the president is misbehaving, the remedy for that is impeachment, and the Constitution does not let the president give a self-pardon for impeachment because the president can't give a pardon for anyone who's been impeached. Um, I tend to think that's how they would view it. Um, and so to the extent there was a criminal action brought against a president that is a regular action and not an impeachment, I think they would view that as not being covered by the exceptions to the pardon power, and therefore it would be included. You know, And to the extent there was going to be kind of a, a concern about the self-dealing aspect, that that's something for voters to take into account You know, when they assess uh, a person who's occupying the presidency. Um, so it's really kind of to be checked by political means, not through a court ruling the power to be invalid. That's my instinct um, of where they would come out. But, um, you know, I have, uh, you know, I can't say that that one is a slam dunk either way. You know, I've, I've read lots of arguments on both sides by very thoughtful people, and they've made good points in both directions. Um, that's just my prediction. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I do think that that's one where the composition of the court matters. You know, there's been a lot of discussion in this podcast and elsewhere about the way in which the, the courts have changed over the course of the Trump presidency. And I think that to some extent it can be overstated. I do think that there's something to Ju uh, Chief Justice Roberts' statements that that there are no Bush judges or Obama judges or Trump judges. There's just, you know, federal judges uh, all doing their, their part. And we've seen, of course, uh, Trump nominee and so, uh, who I is a man who I respect personally very much. Uh, Steve Bebas, uh, you know, issued, a, a, I think, a sweeping decision against one of the Trump uh, suits. Uh, but this is an area which where there's really there's a lot of room here for judges to bring their own judicial philosophy to it. I think this is one where the composition of the court might have some impact. In other words, if we had a Justice Garland and Justice Ginsburg, we might have a different uh, perspective about how the court might come out on this one. Um, I, I am um, one thing I am interested in, though, you know, we did have uh, a, is a previous guest on our podcast, Miles Taylor, who was a, um, a, a chief, the chief of staff for the Department of Homeland Security under uh, the, uh, President Trump. And he talked about uh, President Trump uh, directing people at the Department of Homeland Security to engage in illegal activities. And he told them that if they got in trouble for that, he would pardon them. 
I'm curious if you think that there's any, uh, whether there would be any limit on his use of the pardon power in that respect, if those people had followed his directive or his suggestion. I mean, if the question is, had they been given a pardon from him, would it somehow be invalidated because he previously promised him that pardon? I don't think so. You know, again, if we're viewing this from the perspective of um, a a president who believes that um, he is, in fact, taking care that the law be properly executed, you know, in line with the Constitution – and someone who works for that president says, but, you know, what if someday another president views it differently and, and I might be um, pursued for that? And the president says, no, because, you know, I um, will make sure that doesn't happen because I will grant clemency because that's part of my agenda is to pursue this lawful course of action that I believe is lawful. And I will make sure you're not going to be a victim of that kind of political uh, lawsuit, you know, criminal charges going forward. You know, I think it, it gets back into that question that we had earlier about, um, you know, although it is certainly possible for someone to view that all as, you know, kind of very corrupt and looks like quid pro quo and, you know, how much of it, but, you know, there's another way to paint those facts, which is, you know, a, a president that just wants to get something done. And if you think that the other side is going to improperly pursue criminal charges against you, you know, you could immunize that by using the pardon power. Um, you know, so some of this is just we haven't had to deal with these kinds of things in United States history, you know, blissfully, um, because we've just had certain norms that have been in place that have meant that these kinds of issues haven't come up. You know, we have had, I, I think, for the most part, um, administrations who have respected the rule of law um, and this kind of discussion didn't happen. And and you, we have just not had a history of criminal prosecutions against people in administrations, right? That's been relatively rare. Um, and I think, you know, I think more of these issues, sadly, are going to be coming up now because I think we we have different norms about when is it appropriate to bring criminal charges against a sitting president or people very high up in administrations. Um, you know, I, I think that it's going to become inevitable that some of these issues will be ones that courts are going to have to decide. But I think they're going to be reluctant to kind of second guess pardons that the president gives to people for whatever reasons. You know, the the solution for all of these things is for voters to say, what do I think about this person that did that? You know, and and should Trump decide, you know, I've heard he's thinking he's going to run again in 2024, this will all be a public record um, for voters to ask themselves, you know, how do you feel about a person who felt the need to pardon their entire family should he do that. (laughs) Um, You know, and I think courts will say that's the right check on that kind of abuse of power is, you know, let let the voters decide about that as opposed to having courts come in, given that the language of the Constitution is written so strong. Um, Now, having so I think the pardons themselves would be upheld. Someone who got that pardon can can confidently feel that it will be held valid by a court. There is a second question about whether or not in issuing a pardon or promising a pardon, um, you know, there was some obstruction of justice or some other bribery charges that could be brought. You know, that's a different question. That's more your uh, department than my department. Um, But I think the pardon itself would be upheld. So 
Um, I one thing I do want to do, I will say as a side note before we move on that, you know, I think that your answer highlights something that's been a recurring theme in the last four years, at least in this podcast, which is uh, that so many of the things that we have taken for granted are really norms and not laws. Uh, but I um, I do want to get to one last question from our listeners. Uh, Patty, do you have that? Yeah, one of, of course, uh, one of the questions that comes up over and over again is if he, you know, whether it's for himself or for others, uh, in particular, if he were to pardon himself, does that remove his Fifth Amendment protections against self-incrimination going forward? So he can't uh, claim the Fifth for anything that he was pardoned for. Um, but because he still faces potential criminal charges in state courts, um, you know, I, I'm dubious that it really kind of paves the way for free-flowing testimony going forward <laughs> that wouldn't be impeded by the Fifth Amendment, because um, for so many of the things that we're talking about, there's potential uh, state liability. Yeah, I think that's that's exactly right, Professor. I think that it would only be the, – the, the only way it would kind of eliminate the Fifth Amendment issue is for offenses that are uniquely federal. So, for example – obstructing a federal investigation is a uniquely federal offense. So obstructing the Mueller investigation, for example, is something that can it really only can be charged federally. So if you're asking him about activities he took um, to uh, obstruct the Mueller investigation, I think that's a possibility. But I think, uh, Professor, you're exactly right that the vast majority of the activities we're talking about here and the ones that I think people are the most um, intrigued by whether it's you know his finances and uh, so forth uh, are matters that are currently the subject of criminal investigations by, for example, the Manhattan DA. And for that reason, you know, if I was a lawyer representing someone in Trump's position, uh, I would be very aggressively talking about potential state liability and prospective state liability. In other words, even if somebody isn't investigating something yet, they might be in the future. Yeah. And even on the obstruction charge, I should add, because of the limit that you can only pardon someone for activities that happened in the past, you know, to the extent that any investigation going forward, if he had future acts of obstruction. <laughs> you know, after he leaves office, he has additional conversations with people about the um, underlying subject matter of the Mueller investigation. You know, any new thing he does, that could be the basis for criminal charges. So again, you kind of run into that blurred line about what you'd be pleading the fifth about. Um, and if it was, you know, if there was, let's just hypothetically say some kind of ongoing conspiracy where a group of them got together to agree not to cooperate. You can only pardon them for the uh, aspects of the conspiracy that took place in the past. But if it's an ongoing conspiracy, um, you can't pardon it going into the future. And so, again, there's, there's a real limit to kind of how much immunization you really get from the pardon itself, uh, precisely because some of those um, – activities that would take place after he leaves office or just after the term of the pardon itself, whatever the end date would be, um, uh, you know, would be the, the last date on which the pardon itself issues that, she, that he could give the authority to, to give the pardon for. Um, anything that happens after that uh, could potentially be the basis for criminal charges. And so that could also be a ground on which he has to plead the fifth. Yeah. And I think I'll just say somebody, you know, who, Spent many years prosecuting cases and now spends a lot of time defending uh, people who are under investigation. These issues do get 
negotiated uh, over time. I mean, I, I could imagine a situation where, uh, for example, a Trump lawyer wants it, to, it says he's going to take the fifth as to everything. And then uh, a Manhattan prosecutor saying, well, you can't take the fifth as to your, you know, discussions with James Comey on these days and your decisions on those days, you know, you, you, there can be an attempt to essentially question Trump on a question by question basis and then litigate the issue of whether or not he has, um, you know, can take the, can validly take the fifth as a certain questions, but it's very murky. It's very messy. Uh, Unless you can reach an agreement with the other side, it's an opportunity for additional delay. So it's a much more complicated issue than it might seem from the 280 character Twitter uh, you know, a tweet that you're reading about the subject. Um, I did want to talk to you, though, uh, briefly, Professor, about you, know, you talked about how clemency could be used in a positive way. And one one thing that I think is important to highlight is a program that the Obama administration had, uh, particularly in its final years, to grant clemency uh, more broadly for people who engaged in nonviolent offenses like drug crimes and fit various criteria. And uh, President Obama issued a, 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 a good number, not not a sweeping number, but a very good, a large number of um, of uh, commutations and so forth on that basis. One thing I wonder, you know, there's there's been a lot of talk and and uh, writing and discussion about incarceration epidemic in this country that we have a very 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 high rate of incarceration compared to the rest of the world. And as you um, alluded to earlier, there's been a real change, I think, in public perspective regarding drug offenses. You know, could a president in the future use the pardon or clemency power to potentially engage in criminal justice reform because clemency affects is is really one way to look at, as you point out, sentences that are already imposed versus reforming the law for the future? Yes, and I certainly hope that it happens um, because I think – you know, when President-elect Biden takes office, you know, he is highly likely to be facing a Senate that is not going to be cooperative. Um, and so if if he wants to engage in criminal justice reform, you know, I think it's going to be tough to do it through legislation. And it really does um, pave the way for thinking about other means. And I think clemency was was built for that. You know, it, it's supposed to be used for that. Um, there's nothing improper about using clemency to correct excessively long sentences. And, you know, the fact that we may have and do have thousands of them um, is really more a statement of how unjust the application of criminal law has been in America than it would be about abuse of the clemency power. You know, the just sheer numbers that need it um, are not a reflection of anything other than the fact that, you know, we've really had federal criminal laws out of whack for a while. Um, and so I think it would be not only appropriate, but wise for uh for President Biden to come in and really have an agenda to use the clemency power to correct those excessively long sentences. There were thousands and thousands of people that were missed by the Obama initiative. Um, You know, there's been a report by the Inspector General of the Department of Justice and the Sentencing Commission where I served, also issued a report. And it's it's clear from both of those that according to President Obama's own criteria, um, there were thousands of people who did not get clemency who who met the criteria. So the process um, 
left something to be desired. And, and I think the main problem with it was that, you know, in order to get clemency um, in a normal uh, administration um, is you go through the Department of Justice. You, you file a petition with the Office of the Pardon Attorney, and it works its way up through the Department of Justice chain of command, all the way up to the Deputy Attorney General. Um, and only if you kind of make it through this four-step gauntlet in the Department of Justice does it even go over to the White House, to the White House Counsel's Office. And Unfortunately, because the Department of Justice is an agency that is primarily geared toward law enforcement and prosecution, it is very hard to objectively look at those petitions. The first thing the Department of Justice does is go back to the prosecutor's office that brought the case in the first place and say, what do you think? You know, and it's, it's just, <laughs> it defies all we know about human psychology to expect the person who brought the case, the office who brought the case to say, oh, yeah, I really shouldn't have done that. That's too long. Um, instead, what we mostly see is when DOJ goes back to that office, they say, while that was great of us, deny it. And and so DOJ recommends no on almost all of the petitions. So, you know, I think what President Biden needs to do, and, and I've made this argument, I should say, I made the argument to President Obama, I made the argument to President Trump, um, you got to take that process out of the Department of Justice. It, it's only there by fortuity. It was never kind of consciously thought that's the right place for these decisions. It was historical accident. Um, but it's crazy to think your clemency process is being controlled by the people who prosecuted the case. You know, it's, it's really putting... Um, the foxes uh, in charge of which hens to release. Like, it's, it's not a great idea. Um, you can have prosecutors weigh in on the decision but not be in charge of it. So I think that if President Biden sets up a, a different organizational structure for reviewing those petitions, um, there is no reason why he won't find thousands of meritorious cases to reduce sentences for. Um, because I, I should add to your point about um, – excessively long sentences, even when Congress has made changes to the law to lower sentences, um, they don't make those changes retroactive. Um, you know, they, they've only done that in the case of uh, crack cocaine adjustments um, once. Every other adjustment that they made downward, um, they only did it going forward. So if you're someone who is serving a sentence from the 80s and the 90s and the law has now changed and you would get a, a mandatory minimum sentence that's half as long as the one you got, um, there's nothing you can do about it because the law was only changed prospectively. But clemency is a tool for a president to go in and, and really um, make that retroactive adjustment. And, and I think it would be particularly meaningful and important for President Biden to do that because as a legislator, he was responsible for many of the worst laws uh, that came out of the 80s and 90s that, that sentenced those people. Um, and so I know he has spoken about how he regrets some of that, um, and it would really kind of come full circle for him now as president to be in a position to actually remedy some of those prior wrongs. Wow. Well, thank you, Professor Barker. That's a, a fascinating perspective. I've learned a lot from you during this conversation, and I really appreciate you taking the opportunity to explain all of this to us. Oh, thank you. I really appreciated the chance to talk about these issues. I think we'll be seeing lots more on the pardon <laughs> horizon in the, <laughs> the next month and a half or so. Indeed. Indeed. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this episode of On Topic. Please subscribe to this podcast, go to your app and review the podcast, and join us for our next episode. I'm Renato Mariotti. Until next time, let's stay on topic.